The following is a repeat broadcast of the Global Research News Hour, originally airing March 25th, 2022. Will Russia prevail in its quest to remove Nazis from Ukraine and eliminate them as an instrument of NATO aggression? Are the sanctions they are faced with going to destroy their offensive capacity or blow back on people on the NATO side? Was the true purpose of provoking Russia to attack Ukraine actually to subdue Europe? How does the Russian loss of NATO-allied countries measure up to the loss of value of the U.S. greenback? What is Canada's fate as the U.S. economy continues to collapse? This week on the Global Research News Hour, we take a look at what this war with Ukraine will look like in a few weeks' time and of the ramifications for the world beyond as the various trade sanctions take their toll. In our first half hour, Marine Corps Intelligence Officer Scott Ritter weighs in with his beliefs that, in spite of appearances, Russia is doing brilliantly and will be finished soon. He will also offer thoughts about the role of President Zelensky and about the impact of the sanctions. In our second half hour, we will talk about the acceleration of America's decline brought about by the war and the demise of the U.S. dollar on the world scene with the great economic thinker Michael Hudson. On this week's program, NATO-Russia proxy war, revealing signs of a fading America. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of March 25th, 2022. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Ojikri, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. A small batch of documents released by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration in mid-November 2021 revealed that in the first three months of the COVID jab rollout, Pfizer received 42,086 adverse event reports that included 1,223 deaths. The first really large tranche of Pfizer documents, some 10,000 pages, was released by the FDA March 1, 2022. Included are nine pages of recorded side effects, about 158,000 different health problems in all. An initial review of case report forms, or CRFs, reveal significant data collection errors and anomalies. Problems included patients entered into the healthy population group who were far from healthy, serious adverse event, or SAE, numbers that were left blank, sample barcodes that were missing, at least one death 
of a patient the day before being listed as being at a medical checkup and second doses that were administered outside the three-week protocol window. That comes from the article, Newly Released Pfizer Documents Reveal COVID Jab Dangers by Dr. Joseph Mercola, posted March 23rd, originally published on the Mercola website. COVID is gone from the headlines everywhere. This is no coincidence. Geopolitics do not know coincidences, only plans and strategies. The ever stronger and more relentless provocation to pull Russia into a war with Ukraine may it have been planned by the WEF and the WEF's handlers because the WEF's full and final agenda is much stronger and wider and larger and deeper than COVID and the war combined. That comes from the article, Ukraine-Russia, a proxy war, advancing the agenda of the Great Reset, by Peter Koenig, posted March 23rd. Can no one in leadership position see it coming? Do Western politicians believe Russia will allow herself to be defeated by non-military means? Does the Kremlin believe that resolving the Ukrainian situation will end the West's attacks on Russia? As always in human affairs, stupidity prevails. That Washington and its despicable puppet states parade around like goody-two-shoes shouting accusations at Russia when it is Washington and its puppets who are provoking war, and everyone falls for it, tells me that Washington has the world on the road to nuclear Armageddon. That comes from the article, Washington is driving the world to nuclear war, by Dr. Paul Craig Roberts, posted March 23rd. Like many of my friends, I see the government and not the people as the problem. We are shocked by the war in Ukraine. We must help these refugees, but we must also speak out and demand that all refugees should be treated as the Ukrainians. We cannot accept the government dividing the refugees by saying that those from Ukraine deserve better and kinder treatment than us because they are not Muslims and are mainly with white skin. That comes from the article, I am angry, I am a refugee, my family took me aged five from the war in my country, which killed five of my brothers and sisters. By Mohammedner Abdi, posted March 23rd, originally published in Samos Chronicles. While in no way excusing Russia's criminal invasion, NATO expansion eastward increased its likelihood. Although we'll never know if the war would not have happened under different circumstances after a month of Russian violence against Ukraine, the two countries' negotiators have reportedly agreed that it will reject joining NATO as part of a peace pact. Russia has long objected to NATO's eastward expansion, particularly Ukraine's de facto incorporation into the alliance. It repeatedly raised objections to NATO encircling its territory in the months leading up to its illegal invasion. Last week, the head of the European Union's foreign policy, Josep Borrell, even admitted the push to expand NATO into Ukraine was an error. 
That comes from the article, NATO is a Problem, Not the Solution, by Eve Engler, posted March 23rd, originally posted on the Eve Engler website. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. Once again, I would like to emphasize that neither global research nor this program support Russia's recent military incursion into Ukraine as of February 24th. We stress that it is important to pursue a peace process to de-escalate the situation and avoid further loss of life and further trends in the direction of nuclear war. Regrettably, there has been a great loss of life both on Ukrainian and on the Russian side, but we also believe that in war, the truth is the first casualty. That is why global research is laboring to paint the bigger picture of the situation in order to understand the crisis at hand. We also want to paint out that in the coming interview, my guest talks about the Nazis and Nazi formations in Ukraine. I got a past guest on the show from March 4th entitled The Start of World War III, Things You Don't Know About Russia and Ukraine, and on last week's program, elaborate on the evidence that this was more than Russian disinformation. As well, an overwhelming number of reputable people, including David Pugliese of the Ottawa Citizen and Scott Ritter of Esprit de Corps, acknowledge the role of Nazis in Ukraine. Please review the shows I mentioned if you need details. Further, the guest in question is a reputable figure in his own right. Before we begin, I will alert you that you might find the discussion extremely distressing, and I suggest using extreme caution before listening to the following conversation. Many people working in media say the the Russian operation against Ukraine is not working out as they had hoped. They're bogged down outside of cities, soon to engage larger numbers of people resisting. It's said the Russians may resort to chemical or biological weapons at some point, though these are typical arguments by the United States who who once warned of the smoking gun in in Iraq turning out to be a mushroom cloud uh, over the weapons of mass destruction uh, uh, scenario. But bringing us, um, we're going to bring you now a qualified but different analysis uh, of the military situation by one Scott Ritter. He is a U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer, former chief UN weapons inspector from 1991 to 1998, and currently engaged as a commentator and columnist on the Huffington Post, Coast Consortium News, and the American Conservative. He joins us from Del Mar, New York. Thanks for joining us, uh, Scott. Well, thanks for having me. Now, uh, the last time you were on the show, about a month before Russia authorized a military incursion into Ukraine, you mentioned that if it did happen, it would not be trying to occupy the country. It would be, in your words, lancing the boil, an attempt to demilitarize and destroy Ukraine as a modern nation state. It seems, based on mainstream media coverage, that it is, in fact, trying to occupy the country. Millions of Ukrainians are literally leaving the country as we speak. And 
this is not an operation that would end in days. It's, it's now approaching a month. Several Russian soldiers have been killed. They seem to be bogged down outside of cities. Uh, certainly NATO is not yet going to engage them, it's true, but Russia isn't succeeding, uh, no doubt due in part, it seems, to the resistance of Ukrainian soldiers. So let me ask you, if, if you've changed your mind about what you said uh, two months ago, I mean, did you err in your assessment of, of the Rus Russian logistics of the situation? No, I'm 100% correct. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is Russia isn't occupying Ukraine. Ukraine is a nation of uh, 41 million people. Now, they say 10 million of those are displaced, uh, some internally, some have fled. That still leaves 30 million people um, occupying you know, expansive areas of uh, terrain, including uh, cities such as Kiev, where you have over 3 million people. Russia came in with 200,000 troops. Now, military math just simply says, no, you're not occupying Ukraine with 200,000 troops. Um, so let's just stop that kind of nonsense right off the bat. Um, you know, there, this is politicized rhetoric when people say that Russia is trying to, because what you've done now is create a straw man that then says, therefore, Russia has failed in its objectives. Russia is succeeding wildly in its objectives. I don't have to speculate. Russia has stated what its objectives are. There are two military objectives that will lead to one political objective. The first military objective is denazification. That is the absolute destruction, liquidation, annihilation of the neo-Nazi and ultra-right-wing nationalist military formations and the political parties that sustain them, along with any legislation that empowers them. For instance, legislation passed in January of 2021 which uh, made Stepan Bandera a, um, you know, a, a right-wing, uh, Nazi-supporting, Jew-killing, um, you know, Ukrainian nationalist, elevated him to the, to the status of national hero. Uh, and, and then went around, uh, they passed additional legislation, which um, named streets after him, named boulevards, named places, raised monuments, and then also uh, brought back into you know, the mainstream uh, people of his ilk, um, Nazis, people who uh, had enlisted and served in um, Waffen SS units during World War II, people who had served in um, yeah, Einsatzgruppen that uh, killed Jews during World War II. These people are now rehabilitated uh, and their names are put up in places of honor. Um, the Russians want to eliminate this. They want legislation passed in Ukraine which delegitimizes Nazis instead of praising Nazis. Uh, the Russians are doing very well on this front. Um, they're in the process of um, finishing off the last uh, Nazi defenders of the city of Mariupol. Uh, this is where the Azov Battalion, now a regiment, um, it was, it was headquartered. These are right-wing neo-Nazi extremists, um, many of whom have swastikas and other Nazi symbols tattooed on their bodies. Um, this, is, this is where they tormented the Russian-speaking population for the past eight years. Um, they are now in the process of being killed or captured by the Russians. That is what denazification looks like. Similar denazification uh, processes are taking place elsewhere in Ukraine, anywhere where the Russian forces find a, um, a neo-Nazi uh, you know, national unit of the Ukrainian army. Um, so 
anybody who thinks that the Nazis are doing well against uh, against the Russians, think again. The second is demilitarization. This means that Russia is going to dismantle the NATO army that had been built in Ukraine. A lot of people don't realize that there were 260,000 active duty Ukrainian military personnel, most of whom had been trained by NATO in the past eight years to NATO standards. That means that Russian or the Ukrainian military units were interoperable with the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. You could take a battalion of NATO trained Ukrainian troops and place them under NATO command and they would perform well. This isn't theory, this is reality. Ukrainian troops participated in numerous NATO-led operations around the world and in Europe. So Russia has said that this, the existence of a NATO proxy force is unacceptable and that its goal is to demilitarize Ukraine. Now, this could be done peacefully with the Ukrainian soldiers staying in their barracks while the Russians dismantled and removed from Ukraine all NATO-provided equipment um, and oversaw the reorganization of the Ukrainian military in a manner which did, which made it no longer a de facto proxy of NATO, or if they wanted to resist, Russia would destroy them. Now, Russia came in a little soft-handed early on. They didn't bomb the barracks. They went out of their way to avoid um, unnecessary deaths among the Ukrainian uh, troops, but the Ukrainians decided to fight. And let's, let's be clear here. This is a big army, 260,000 active duty, 310,000 reservists and security forces. Um, normally in the military, if you want to launch an offensive operation, you want a three to one advantage. That is for every single defender, you want three of your own troops. Russia went into Ukraine with a three to one disadvantage, meaning for every single Russian, there were three Ukrainians. And yet Russia is winning on the battle, on the battlefield. They are advancing at a rate faster than the German army advanced during the Blitzkrieg of World War II. They are engaging the Ukrainian forces on large-scale combat operations, the likes of which have not been seen in Europe since World War II, and they are prevailing. They are in the process of entrapping 60 to 100,000 Ukrainian troops in eastern Ukraine, one of the largest double-envelopment cauldron-type operations seen since World War II. They are doing the same around Kiev, and they are doing the same in the area of Odessa. A lot of people look at um, videotapes that have been put out on YouTube and elsewhere showing uh, destroyed Russian columns, dead Russian troops. This is war on a scale that people can't imagine. It's well beyond anything the United States and its allies undertook in Iraq and Afghanistan. When you have war on this level, there will be tactical setbacks. The Ukrainians, who are extremely hard fighting, well-trained, well-equipped troops, are capable of limited combat success, and they are enjoying limited combat success on the battlefield. There is multiple occasions where they have defeated the Russians, where they have inflicted serious casualties on the Russians. But from an operational and strategic standpoint, the Russians are winning and winning decisively. The Ukrainians cannot sustain their defense. They lack the logistical um, uh, depth They've, they're running out of gas, they're running out of ammunition, they're running out of food and water. Uh, their troops are worn out, worn down, and are rapidly disintegrating as we speak. As we speak, the Ukrainian defenses in eastern 
uh, Ukraine are collapsing. They're starting a panicked retreat westward. They're going to be cut off by the Russians and probably killed by the Russians if they don't surrender to the Russians. So, no, the Russians are doing quite well. People keep Would you saying, say that the Russians, I mean, are they, I mean, put on your military and analyst glasses for a moment. And did you say, I mean, is Russia going to prevail and, and how far away is the, the victory? Is it, is it weeks away or? or? Well, Ru- Ru- Russia will prevail. And I believe that Russia is closer to victory than they were, than they were starting this conflict, meaning that the Ukrainian military is collapsing as we speak. Um, and the, the ability for Ukraine to sustain large scale uh, resistance um, is 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 diminishing, if not being eliminated. Uh, this 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 war is over. It's all over, but the shouting. Um, that's if, just if a, that's just a statement of fact. If you're right about this, and 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 then then what what do you make of the role of Zelensky in this situation? Because he's been speaking to governments around the world, and and he's a national hero and everything. But but does he think that this can still be that he can still win this uh, if? if the forces will, you know, close the sky and, and uh, all, all the other things, or is there something more going on? And uh, you know, in terms of seeing the writing on the wall, as it were. Well, Zelensky knows what the outcome of this will be. Um, you know, think about it for a second. Every time he says, "If you just close the skies, if you just give us a no-fly zone, we can win." But what's he really saying? That the Russians are winning the war. Okay, I mean, there's no other way of interpreting that. Yeah, he's not saying, "Hey, don't worry about uh, not closing the skies because we're doing pretty well on the battlefield. We're going to win this thing." He's so saying he knows, that if yeah. you don't close the skies, we have lost this war. Ah, okay. And that's exactly what's happening because NATO isn't going to close the skies, and Ukraine is losing the war. Hmm. He knows this. His generals know this. His troops know this. This is why at every single chance, everybody involved in the Ukrainian resistance is demanding a no-fly zone because without this, they're doomed and they know it. Hmm. What, what about the sanctions aspect of it? I mean, will they, will they, are they going to wear down the Russian public uh, over time or, or, or will the boomerang effect of the sanctions wear down the US, Canada and then the EU first? I mean, how, how do you see that the, the, the sanctions aspect playing out? Well, let's let's look at this strategically for a second. Um, Joe Biden looked Vladimir Putin in the eye last June and threatened him with massive sanctions should he act on Ukraine. Sanctions like you've never seen before. All right, now, Putin... I'm, as soon as he got done changing his pants and everything, because I'm sure that just scared him to death, uh, he had months to sit down with his inner circle and say, how do we prepare for this? Nothing the U.S. and its allies are doing has taken the Russians by surprise. Nothing. They anticipated everything. And they have a plan in response. Just for instance, today. You know, when, when, when the sanctions came out, remember, Russia had like $650 billion in uh, sovereign fund and reserves, foreign reserves, gold reserves. And half of that was uh, dispersed in banks around the world. And people went, why would you do that? Because the West is going to freeze them, which the West did. And the answer is because Russia was setting the West up for a trap, which was sprung today. 
Today, Vladimir Putin gave a speech in which he said the following, because you froze our assets illegally, you have defaulted on every obligation you have in regard to Russia. Therefore, Russia will not only never again accept foreign currency in, in, you know, for payment of Russian services or goods, we are going to demand from this moment on that all nations that are not on the, that are on the non-friendly list, that is everybody who sanctioned them, must now pay in Russian rubles for natural gas. Okay, Europe cannot survive. One of the big things that came out of this economic sanctions was that the United States had been promising Europe, don't worry about Russian gas. We have a plan B. We will be able to bring together resources and make sure that you have the gas you need. Well, there is no plan B. There aren't the resources available. There's not enough gas and Europe, it will shut down immediately. Now, Russia hasn't shut off the pipelines because Russia was laying a trap. Russia now has confirmed that Europe is addicted. Germany has admitted right now that if Russia turns off the gas pipelines, Germany won't have any gas for next winter. It's over, all she wrote. Their economy will collapse. The French economy will collapse. Every economy in Europe will collapse. And there will be a rebounding effect in Canada and the United States. So now Europe's in the difficult position of if they want to keep the gas going that they must keep going in order to survive, they got to pay in Russian rubles. And take a look at what's happened to the Russian ruble just today. It's rebounding. Everybody said the ruble was collapsing. No, it's the dollar that's collapsing right now because the Russians have laid a trap. They set the trap. And this is just the first of many. The Russians have many other traps out there that they have set and they can uh, initiate at a time of their choosing. So, uh, you know, the, the, the notion that the sanctions, look, the sanctions are hurting Russians right now. There's no doubt about that. But the sanctions also liberated Putin for the first time since he took power to be able to divorce Russia from the Western economy. And in doing so, eliminate in totality any leverage the West had over Russian um, uh, domestic political affairs. The West used to be able to threaten sanctions. And the Russians would say, gosh, we maybe we don't want to do that. So well, the West, no longer has the West has sanctioned everything. It's over. And Russia, Putin has said, thank you very much. Thank you. You've done me a big favor. The first thing you've done by freezing all the assets is that you have disemboweled the oligarchs. You know, that corrupt class of Russian businessmen that came to life during Boris Yeltsin's tenure as president that uh, Putin inherited. Putin was able to um, neuter them politically by telling them that if they get involved in domestic politics, he will destroy them. And he did. Several of them have been forced to flee to uh, London and elsewhere because uh, Putin would put them in jail for life. <clears throat> the others that remained were able to retain their riches and continue to get rich, but uh, they weren't allowed to be involved in politics. But their existence has always been a thorn in Putin's side. He doesn't like them, he doesn't want them, and he hates the fact that he needed them. But now that the West has gone in and seized all their assets, they're bankrupt and broke. And guess what? Putin doesn't want them now. He's told them to get the heck out of Russia. He has no use for them. Go live where you wanted to live over there. You're no longer welcome here. 
The other thing that's happened is about 20% of the Russian population that was relatively apolitical, uh, who tended to vote uh, for the status quo, meaning vote for Putin, um, would have turned on Putin had Putin initiated a divorce with the West. This, these are the Russian middle class whose economic well-being had become so intertwined with the West that there could be no thought of breaking with the West. And any move by Russia, by Putin, by anybody to do so would have uh, caused a backlash that in a democracy, and Russia is a democracy, uh, would have cost the incumbent the vote. Putin would have been voted out. But now that the West has sanctioned Russia, it's not Putin that has made the divorce, it's the West. And Putin now is applying shock therapy to these, these people, uh, seeking to rapidly reinstate their middle-class status by pivoting eastward to China, to India, to elsewhere, uh, to recapitalize the Russian economy. And now that he has made gas based upon the ruble standard, those rubles that these Russians had in the bank that were that last week were worth nothing, they're worth twice as much today. And this time next week, they'll double in value again. Wow. And the middle class is gonna forget the West ever existed. Amazing analysis, Scott Ritter. Uh, it's been a pleasure hearing your unique take on the situation. We thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. You've been speaking with U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer and analyst Scott Ritter, who joins us from Del Mar, New York. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. At this point, we would like to broaden the conversation a bit. This war is more than bullets and bombs and deaths. It is about sanctions. The world is essentially separating into two global factions. We therefore talked about this dimension in our next conversation. We're looking at a lot of, you know, the whole site of the Ukraine uh, is becoming more and more dreary. But what are the, the larger repercussions, not only for Ukraine and, and Russia, but the United States and the world to help us take a look at the even bigger picture of the Ukraine-Russia conflict. I'm privileged to have Michael Hudson with me. Michael Hudson is president of the Institute for the Study of Long-Term Economic Trends, uh, a Wall Street financial analyst, uh, distinguished research professor of economics at the University of Missouri in Kansas City. He's the author of several books, including the third edition of his great volume, Super Imperialism, The Economic Strategy of American Empire. He joins us now from New York. Great privilege to speak with you again, Mr. Hudson. Uh, Welcome. Thanks for having me on. Now, uh, we're seeing NATO unifying together behind uh, the uh, U.S. call to, to sanction Russia, including removal from the SWIFT system. Uh, they're being hit with sanctions to hurt, you know, sanctions from hell, as uh, President Biden would say. And it doesn't look as if it's working. Uh, the, but the sanctions are boomeranging and, and hitting the EU and, and the U.S. Uh, pretty hard with soaring rates for food, fertilizer, oil and gas. Um, they, they seem to provoke... Uh, Russian aggression, you know, they, they just kind of compelled them to do that. And we know it wasn't a response. I mean, it's something that had been working on all along. But what really was the strategic goal 
of provoking Russia to go to a, a sanctions war with Ukraine? I mean, do they foresee Russia begging for mercy or is there more going on here? I think it's just the opposite of what you've uh, said. Uh, the war isn't against Russia. The war isn't against Ukraine. The war is against Europe and Germany. The, uh, the purpose of the sanctions is to prevent uh, uh, Europe and uh, other allies from uh, increasing their trade and investment with Russia and China, because the United States saw that the, uh, the center of world growth uh, is not in America now that it's deindustrializing, that uh, following neoliberal policies since the 1980s has ended up hollowing out the US economy. And how on earth can the United States maintain prosperity if it's lost the ability to do wealth creation? Well, the only way of maintaining prosperity if you can't create it at home is to get it from abroad. And the, uh, the uh, attempt beginning a year ago uh, by President Biden and by the US uh, neocons was to block Nord Stream uh, uh, 2 and uh, failing that to block uh, all uh, energy trade and other trade with Russia so that the United States could monopolize it uh, itself. One of the main uh, tools for the last hundred years of US control of the world economy has been by the oil industry controlling world energy trade. Energy is the key to uh, 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 the GDP, the productivity in every country. And uh, the thought of uh, energy trade passing out of US control into that of other countries threatened the United States ability to turn off other countries. So the provocation of uh, war in Ukraine and the provocation of a U.S. response uh, has enabled the U.S. to say, look at how awful the Russian is doing. It's defending itself. Defending itself against the United States is a declaration of war because it means that you are uh, breaking away from the dollarized system. And so by, by the thought that uh, other countries had the potential of becoming independent was viewed as the United States as a challenge to the United States ability to dictate their policies and to use uh, dollar diplomacy to take control of their uh, commanding heights. Uh, the big fear of the United States, of course, was that the environmental movement uh, would be able to move to stop global warming by slowing uh, the uh, carbon uh, fuels and uh, 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 oil and gas. And so by, locking, by creating this crisis in Europe, the United States has uh, greatly uh, bases its foreign policy on accelerating global warming, Excel, uh, accelerating uh, coal and oil is the fuels of the future. I think uh, President Biden in uh, uh, Poland today is uh, uh, promising uh, Polish coal to uh, replace uh, Russian oil and American coal. That's why President Biden has uh, uh, Senator Manchin from uh, the coal industry lobby as head of the environmental uh, uh, an energy uh, agency. So uh, what you're seeing is not the U.S. backfiring and shooting it in the foot by creating a world crisis. That's the idea, because it realizes that in a world crisis, energy prices are going to go way up, benefiting the U.S. Uh, balance of payments, not only as an energy exporter, but the uh, uh, oil companies that control the world uh, oil trade once they exclude Russia uh, uh, from it. Uh, 
agricultural crop prices will go way up, uh, benefiting the United States as a uh, agricultural exporter, especially if they prevent uh, uh, Ukrainian and Russian uh, uh, wheat exports. Uh, and this is going to create a, crisis, uh, a debt crisis for third world countries whose debts are coming due. And the United States can use this debt crisis to uh, force them uh, or attempt to force them if they go along with it, uh, to uh, continue uh, privatizing and selling off their public domain to US buyers uh, so that they can uh, sell off their patrimony in order to get the money to pay the debts to pay for the higher oil uh, and food imports. So uh, this, the US strategy is to create exactly the world crisis that uh, you represent as being accidental. You can be sure that these people uh, read the newspapers enough to know that this is the obvious result of what they're doing. Look at what they're doing as deliberate. Don't assume they're dumb. They're smart, they're evil, but they're not dumb. Okay, you know, it's quite a bit there, but I, I want to point out, like in one of your articles, you talked about uh, basically three areas that have, uh, are, you know, economic areas that, that seem to be dominating things in the U.S. right now. There's the, the oil and gas sector, there's the military industrial complex, and then there's the fire sector, uh, finance, yeah. industry, and real estate. And uh, I think all three of those areas are benefiting from uh, the, the current situation. Uh, you, you'd see it's clearly, I mean, the, 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 the met levels of uh, rates of Raytheon and Lockheed Martin, so on going up. So, and, and I mean- are, are well, I'm you, not sure about the banks. Uh, uh, that's, uh, you, where do the banks' uh, interest end up in all this? Uh, banks since the 13th century have made uh, the bulk of their money on trade financing. Receivables, uh, if you're an importer of oil, uh, you get a letter of credit so that uh, the bank promises to pay when the delivery is made. Trade financing is a huge uh, uh, banking uh, activity. And now uh, the US banks are, have, are locked out of this trade fin financing as long, long as it concerns Russia, China, and uh, probably the Belt and Road Initiative countries. So uh, it's hard to see how the banks are benefiting. And uh, especially if the uh, third world countries, uh, the global South countries uh, re uh, say, uh, we are not going to sacrifice our, uh, our economies and impose austerity just to pay foreign bondholders. The loans have gone bad. They're odious loans. We're repudiating, we're not paying them. Uh, that is not going to help uh, uh, banks and investors. So uh, the, the banks seem to have taken a, uh, 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 they're be, be behind uh, uh, in all of this. The war doesn't seem to be uh, economic as much as uh, neoliberal, uh, a visceral hatred of Russia uh, and uh, a hatred of, uh, of Germany also. Uh, among the neocons. And I think that that's, uh, it's not understood that there's this uh, uh, non-economic, uh, uh, almost a racist uh, uh, hatred at work here when it extends uh, to China, for instance. And uh, the, the United States is, uh, uh, <laughs> you, you don't know what's going to happen in anarchy. If there's a financial war and a, a, the world is splitting into two economic blocks, it's very much like a military war. You really don't know uh, what's going to happen in uh, 
an anarchy. It's a grab bag. The United States thinks that it has enough power uh, by bribery, by force, by assassination, if need be, as uh, some of the senators have called for, uh, to uh, get its way. But I'm not sure that that's uh, uh, going to be met with a simple passivity on the part of uh, everybody who the United States declares to be an enemy. Well, well, Saudi Arabia recently announced it would be pricing oil in the one, you know, they, that, that means that the dollar uh, now has a competitor, I guess, uh, when it comes to buying oil. Uh, it's oil trade with China. Uh, yeah. Other countries are not going to do their trade in uh, dollars because the United States can simply grab whatever dollar assets they have. If, if a country does something independent, like uh, as when Chile became independent. Uh, uh, wanted to take control of the copper trade under Allende, uh, the United States could simply grab its money. When Venezuela sought uh, to uh, undertake land reform in a popular policy, the United States simply seized uh, its money and the Bank of England seized Venezuela's gold. The United States simply seized Afghanistan's foreign reserves uh, before it seized Russia's foreign reserves. So all of a sudden, countries are afraid to keep, they're afraid to use US banks afraid to use, uh, have any connection with the dollar or to have uh, uh, any, uh, anything available for the United States to grab because that's its policy now. And, uh, that is what's really driving other countries away. And uh, even America's allies uh, must be frightened because Germany is asking for its gold supply to be sent back to it from the New York Federal Reserve uh, uh, bank and uh, uh, airplane loads. Yeah, so you're seeing sort of like a, a domino effect. I mean, is the D dollar, the American dollar, and it was already in some difficulty, but now you can see that really accelerating as, as we continue and all of those other, you know, global South countries and other places that you mentioned, uh, they're, they're going to ditch that and, and go with the other currency or? The, the crisis is political. It's not going with another currency. Uh, uh, President Putin uh, in his speeches said, this war is not about Ukraine. This war is about restructuring the international order. And what that means is an al uh, alternative to the IMF, an alternative set of institutions to the World Bank, an alternative uh, to the World Court, uh, and, and uh, an alternative to uh, the US rules-based order based on, uh, uh, well, the United Nations rules, for instance, but that, but that can't be done as long as the United States is a member of that group. So it means that there's going to be a new grouping of uh, international organizations of which the United States will not join because it won't join any organization that it does not have veto power in. Uh, and uh, so you're going to have two parallel paths. You'll have a neoliberal financialized, uh, a debt finance path in the uh, Europe and North America, and you'll have an industrial capitalism evolving into socialism path uh, in China and Russia and the Belt and Road Initiative, Shanghai Cooperation Organization Bloc. Resolving Ukraine is sort of like a, a short-term deal, but the longer term is going to be, in fact, uh, shaking Europe away from NATO and, and the United States. 
degree of influence. Um, uh, the United States is thoroughly in control of European politicians. There, uh, the only opposition to NATO and the US in Europe is the right wing, the uh, nationalist wing. Now, the left wing is uh, fully uh, behind uh, the United States and uh, has been ever since really the National Endowment for Democracy and other US agencies really took control of the left wing parties throughout Europe. Uh, they've Tony Blairized. Uh, the European left, uh, the social democratic parties in, in Germany and uh, the rest of Europe, the labor parties in England, uh, these are uh, not labor and not socialists. They're basically uh, pro-American uh, neoliberal parties. Mm. Uh, I know that, um, well, Russia is very rich in mineral deposits. It's rich in uh, oil and gas as well. And uh, I mean, R Russia and Ukraine uh, form uh, part of the breadbasket of the world. And, and as they control the minerals, uh, important minerals like the lithium and palladium and, and so forth. Uh, so they're, they're dealing with Ukraine, part of that plan. And as a result, you're gonna see, oh, like, as I mentioned, I mean, a lot of impacts worldwide, including food. And I mean, we're probably gonna start to see even uh, food shortages pretty soon. Um, that is the intention. You have to realize that this was anticipated uh, without gas, uh, already uh, German fertilizer companies are going out of business because fertilizer is made out of gas. And if they can't get the Russian gas, they can't make the fertilizer. And if you don't have the fertilizer, the crops are not going to be as uh, uh, prevalent, uh, abundant as they were before. So all of this, uh, you have to assume that this is so obvious, they knew this would happen, and uh, they expect the United States to benefit from the cost squeeze that it's uh, imposing on food importers to the U.S. benefit. Mm. You know, I mean, I just want to get a sense of, of what the United States has to fight back with. I mean, they had the, the, had the, uh, the, the prestige of, of the dollar in their, in their ability to make up uh, things. But I mean, they also have uh, control, like through using... Uh, you know, confiscating, for example, the, the gold and the, uh, the, the deposits uh, of the Russian government, the Russian central bank. Um, are, are these efforts going to be, I mean, is that the sort of thing that they have? Uh, I mean, we could also talk later on about the, the actual military, but, uh, you know, could you talk about those sorts of tools that the United States has to, to fight back against uh, Russia and uh, the... Uh... Well, the obvious tool it's used for the last 75 years has been bribery. Uh, European politicians especially are very easy to bribe uh, in most countries, uh, just simply uh, paying them money uh, and uh, backing uh, their political campaigns, meddling in other countries by uh, huge financial support of uh, pro-US uh, uh, politicians uh, is the obvious way. Uh, targeted assassination ever since uh, World War II when uh, the British and Americans uh, uh, began, moved into Greece and began shooting all of the uh, anti-Nazis anti because they were largely socialists and uh, Eng England and America wanted to restore uh, the Greek monarchy. Uh, you have uh, Operation Gladio in Italy. Uh, you have the targeted assassinations uh, from Chile all the way through uh, the rest of Latin America uh, uh, in its wake. So, uh, you know, if, if you can't buy them, uh, kill them. 
uh, then there are various military forces. And the main, uh, the main tool that the U.S. has tried to use is sanctions. It can turn off if uh, they can't get their oil or finance it and gas or food from Russia, then America can simply turn off their food supply uh, and uh, turn off uh, critical raw materials and interrupt their uh, product, their economic processes because there's so many different uh, components that you need for almost any kind of uh, uh, economic activity that uh, the United States is looking for pressure points. Uh, and it is going to try to work on the pressure points. Uh, sabotage uh, certainly uh, is another tool that's uh, being used, uh, as you see in Ukraine. So uh, the question is whether the this attempt on pressure points is going to force other countries to, yeah, uh, it certainly is going to cause suffering in the short term for uh, these countries. Uh, over the longer term, they're going to see, we're going to have to become self-sufficient in uh, the main pressure points. We're going to have to produce our own food, not import our wheat. We're going to have to shift away from growing export plantation crops and have our own grain, maybe a return to family size uh, farming uh, to do all this. Uh, we're going to have to produce our own arms. We're going to have to uh, have our own uh, fuel sources and that will include solar energy and uh, renewable energy to become independent of the American dominated oil and gas and coal trade. So uh, as, uh, the, the lo uh, longer term, even medium term, effect of all of this is going to uh, make other countries uh, uh, self-sufficient and independent. There will be uh, a lot of uh, interruptions, uh, even starvation, a lot of uh, uh, property uh, transfers and, uh, and disruption. But over the long term, uh, the United States will, uh, is destroying the idea of a single interconnected globalized order because it's, it's separated uh, the uh, Europe and North America from the whole rest of the world. Mm. Well, how is the like when it comes to uh, the dealing with the, uh, the the oligarchs in Russia, and 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 what they're facing with these sanctions? I mean, do they want the the sanctions to be ended so they could get involved with the United States, or are they taking to Putin and the let's do it on our own approach? I mean, is that well in the past? In the past, the oligarchs uh, uh, were very Western oriented because uh, when they transferred. Uh, uh, Russia's oil and gas and uh, nickel and uh, real estate into their own hands, uh, how do they cash out? You can, there wasn't any money in Russia because it was all destroyed in the, uh, uh, after 1991 in the shock therapy. The only way they could cash out was by uh, selling some of their stocks to the West. And that's what Khodorkovsky wanted to do uh, when he wanted to sell Yukos uh, to, I think, a Standard Oil uh, group. Uh, and uh, now that they realize that uh, the United States can simply grab their yachts, grab their British real estate, grab their sports teams, grab the assets they hold in the West, uh, they're realizing the, their only safety is to hold it within uh, a, in Russia and uh, its allied economies, not uh, uh, US-based economies where uh, whatever they have in the West can be uh, Grab. So uh, uh, yes, uh, today or yesterday, uh, Chubais left uh, left Russia for good uh, and went to the uh, uh, to the west. And uh, you're having uh, the oligarchs uh, choose: either they remain in Russia and uh, look at their wealth by creating Russian 
means of production, or they leave Russia and they take their money and they run uh, and hope that the West will let them keep some of what they've stolen. Mm. Uh, among the countries that are not going to be uh, supporting the sanctions against Russia are, are China, India, uh, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan. I mean, all of those countries in the Central Asian region. And, and that seems to be benefiting the, uh, the, the Belt and Road Initiative, I, I think. But, uh, you'd think so. The, the big question mark is India, uh, because it's so large. And India has already uh, uh, positioned itself to uh, be the intermediary for a lot of financial uh, uh, trade financing uh, uh, with Russia. Uh, India is also uh, prone to be pro-American and Modi in the past politically uh, has been uh, very uh, pro-American. But the fact is that uh, if you're looking at India's Im implicit national economic interest, its economic interest lies uh, with the region it's in with Eurasia, not with the United States. So the question is, uh, I think within the Pentagon and the State Department, their big worry is how do they, how do we keep control of India uh, in, in the US hands? That's, that's going to be uh, one of the big crisis areas for the next few years. Maybe I'll uh, maybe get you to put on your uh, glasses that uh, sort of looking ahead into the future, you know, maybe uh, say uh, a couple of years from now. Um, given the prevailing trends, how is this going to play out? Is it is this uh, is you going to have one side advanced more than the other, or is it going to be a, a nuclear husk? Or what, what is your thinking about where we're? I don't I don't think it'll be nuclear, although it could, given the uh, the ne crazy neocons and uh, with their uh, Christian fundamentalists and Washington uh, with people like Pompeo thinking that Jesus will come if you blow up the world. I mean, these people are literally crazy. I worked with uh, national security people 50 years ago at the Hudson Institute, and uh, I couldn't believe that uh, human brains were uh, as twisted uh, as they were wanting to uh, blow up much of the world for religious reasons and for ethnic reasons and for uh, uh, personal uh, psychology reasons. And these are the people that have somehow risen to a policymaking position in the United States. And they're, they're threatening not only the rest of the world, but of course the US uh, economy as well. But I don't, I don't think atomic war is likely. I think that the United States uh, is going to try to convince other countries that neoliberalism is the way that they can get rich. And of course it's not. Neoliberalism impoverishes. Neoliberalism is a class war against labor by finance primarily, and a class war against industry, a class war against governments. It's a financial class really against uh, the whole rest of society seeking to use uh, uh, debt leverage to uh, uh, control uh, companies, countries, and families and individuals by debt. And uh, the question is, are they really going to be able to convince people that the way to get rich is to go into debt? Or are other countries going to say, this is a blind alley, and it's been a blind alley really since Rome, and uh, that bequeathed all of the uh, pro-credit or debt laws to Western civilization that were utterly different from those of the Near East that uh, uh, were uh, civilizations take off. And just uh, maybe a final thought. I mean, I'm based in Canada, 
And uh, it seems when I hearing about uh, de-dollarization and the, you know, the, the sinking of, of the uh, US economy and how, how things are gonna go for say ordinary individuals. And I'm wondering if, if Canada can somehow escape that trajectory or are we kind of manacled at the risks, you know, where United States goes, we're going there too. What would uh, you think? Uh, Canada is completely controlled by the banking sector. Uh, I, uh, I wrote an article for uh, uh, the government's uh, think tank, uh, uh, Canada and the New Monetary Order in 1978, uh, uh, detailing uh, how uh, Canada was dependent. It's very uh, debt financed, it's uh, financially controlled, and its uh, government is utterly corrupt. Uh, uh, the neoliberal party, uh, uh, the Liberal Party there is uh, thoroughly corrupt, and uh, so are most of the other uh, parties. And they uh, they look at the United States as uh, protecting uh, the corruption and uh, economic gangsterism uh, that enables them to control uh, Canada. And of course, you have uh, your awful assistant uh, uh, premier, the uh, uh, granddaughter of the uh, uh, Ukrainian Nazi. Yeah, Christina Freeland. <laughs> yes. Okay. Well. Michael Hudson, I, I guess we've got to go now, but uh, thanks for that uh, very large and interesting discussion on uh, our, our survival, how we survived this war and uh, what the consequences will be. Thank you very much for well, being my guest on Global Research. It's good to be here. Thank you. In speaking with Michael Hudson, president of the Institute for the Study of Long-Term Economic Trends. You can mention I do have a website, Michael-Hudson, and I'm on Patreon. Uh, on that, and they can go to the website, they can read my articles there uh, and join now uh, the Patreon discussion. Okay, thanks so much. A terrific conversation, largely ignored by mainstream media in the West. You should consider a donation to the Global Research News Hour and to the website globalresearch.ca. If you appreciate these kinds of perspectives, again, we do not endorse the invasion of Ukraine. Remember to donate online at globalresearch.ca. Next week, we will finish off this series of shows on the attacks on Ukraine. We heard a lot about Russian disinformation, and uh, we thought uh, we should consider that uh, there's disinformation on the Ukraine-NATO side as well. Join me in seven days for my conversation with journalist Max Blumenthal of The Grey Zone about what's really going on in Mariupol and more. Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Metis Nation and the heart of the Metis Nation homeland. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for joining us.